everybody. This is John Leslie, and you're with us today to talk about radio. And I've, I've got a real treat for you because we're going to go out into the heartland of America, the Mississippi Delta, and specifically to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And Memphis, of course, is uh, considered the home of the blues. Not only that, the birthplace of rock and roll. They call it the cradle of American music. And so many famous people have come out of the Mississippi uh, Delta. B.B. Um, King, I believe, Isaac Hayes, Roy Orbison, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, and uh, Mike Hambrick. <laughs> <laughs> and he is with us today, our guest. <laughs> You're right there on the list, Mike. Oh, yeah, I'm right up there. Right down. Thank you. Uh, I wish my mother were here to hear that. <laughs> you made the list. Well, Mike, oh, great. Th- this is going to be very interesting for me. I've been to Memphis, and, and I've been around country music and uh, for a lot of years. And you're right in the heart of it. You're right there in the thick of it. Uh, are you a Memphis native? No, John, I'm a Texas native. I was born and raised in Texas. Of course, a lot of good blues people came out of Texas. And, but no, I, but I left Texas at an early age. It's strange. Um, Tommy Lee Jones, the actor is also from Texas. I read an interview with him once. He said, Texans spend the first half of their life trying to get out of Texas (laughs) and the second half trying to get back. (laughs) So you, you can never you can never take the Texan out of a Texan. It's like my dad used to say. He was a he worked in the oil fields in Texas and was a, a cattle rancher. We, I was raised on a cattle ranch and did all the stuff that goes along with that. And he was always saying, "Well, you know, son, anybody can become an American, but you got to be born a Texan." By God. So <laughs> it's interesting. Interesting. Take themselves real seriously. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of my closest golfing buddies that I golf with twice a week is a Texas-born, Harvard-educated, California lawyer who now lives in Winter Haven, Florida. And all he talks about on the golf course is Uvalde, Texas. And Oh, yeah, I know Uvalde. Yeah, and I, I tell him, uh, Richard, why don't you go back there? <laughs> Especially right. when, when he's beating me, you know. Yeah, right. Well, why don't you go back there now? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, tell us, we're, uh, we're, you're, it's interesting. Uh, I have been surprised to find in our conversations on talking about radio, how many of the radio people that I've talked about have actually put pen to paper and have written books and uh, articles and uh, beyond their years uh, on the air entertaining people. And uh, you've done that as well. And we want to talk about that. I, I, I want to serve you well by talking about some of the really interesting books that, that you're involved in. But before that, let's uh, find out about your, your, <laughs> your broadcast background is extremely interesting. Well, um, I was, I, uh, my dad worked, as I say, for an oil company, it was humble oil at the time. And, uh, it was going through a reorganization during my high school years. So my dad was transferred around to a lot of different places. I went to five different high schools in four years. Uh, and, but I graduated from, uh, my dad finally retired to, to the ranch, which is in Hunt County, Texas. That's about, about 60 miles east of Dallas. 
And um, so as a senior in high school, the summer before my senior year, I just went out to the local radio station and applied for a job. And uh, lo and behold, I got it. So that uh, I began my, my broadcast career at 17 years old at uh, um, we signed on at six and signed off at midnight mm-hmm. and, and it was a thousand watt uh, power radio station and it was very local and you know people have to really rewind the tape so to speak to, back to the 1960s the technology was certainly nowhere approaching what it is today nor did we have those of us <clears throat> normal folks didn't have the imagination of thinking about where it would be today. Mm -hmm. But being on the radio was the coolest thing I could think imaginable at the time. And I was so smitten by it. I knew I was very fortunate. I knew from the moment I could still smell the the smell in the little control room where the transmitter was. Absolutely. It was warm, pretty warm in there. But I, I just looked forward to it. It was I, I, you know, it's the old saying, wow, and they pay me to do this? You know, <laughs> they didn't pay me a lot, but for a kid in high school, it made my car payments and bought some gas. Yes. So I, I was, I, I was, it was great. And I did that, John, for about a year and a half. And, you know, everybody's wanting to move up in marketplaces. Absolutely. I, I never, I, 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 I was never what you would call shy. So I sent my, demo tape if you will i i wish i still had it it was i, it would, I would i would way go beyond cringe when i would listen to it i'm sure <laughs> but i sent it to a lot of places and i got a response from a station in memphis and once again rewind the tape this was 1960 late 67 early 68 and fm radio had just become uh, you know, made the transition from what was all classical music to uh contemporary rock music mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. top 40 type music, as you know, at the time. Uh, but it was, it was called underground radio, uh, uh, hard rock radio, album cuts, that kind of thing. And it was uh, FM 100 in Memphis. It was owned by Scripps Howard at the time. Uh, also, <laughs> it was a very different time. Scripps Howard in Memphis owned AM FM radio TV in both morning and afternoon newspapers. Isn't that they something? Just, you know, yeah, it's just incredible. So um, I got I, I got the job, it, and it just floored me. I can remember I was um, in my, my freshman year in college at East Texas State University, which is now part of the Texas A&M University system. But I ran out of the, the dorm and actually ran up on top of the hood of my car and I yelled out, I'm going to Memphis. You know, it was just, I mean, it was such a, such a rush. And, uh, so I, I did, and it just opened the door. It just, it, 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 I never, I never stopped after that. We're and, talking with Mike Hambrick in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. You say you never stopped. Well, well, that was, uh, was that right in, so that was 66, 67, so you were right in the heart of the Elvis era. Yeah, the 68 um, was Elvis's Suspicious Minds was cut in Memphis and that that, uh, that album. Uh, and of course, that was his 
I think that has become his real signature song. And it certainly was a major comeback for him. He was, you know, he kind of dropped down on the popularity meter to uh, much lower than, of course, he had enjoyed most of his career. But this was a this was a huge hit and a huge uh, comeback for him. And uh, it was it, it that what is so uh, prevalent in that in that song are the horns. The Memphis horns are there. Mm-hmm. And it, it just has, if you've ever been in, involved cl- up close with the, with the Memphis sound, uh, that certainly uh, was a, a great representation of everything that the Memphis sound was about. And I think it, it I, obviously everybody that was involved in that session, they were, you know, at the top of their game and they were motivated to do it even above what they normally do because it was Elvis. Sure. And it was, the whole album was, was, that was apparent. It was just, it was truly a classic album, but that was what was happening, uh, in that time frame, John, there was the Memphis sound, you know, and artists and producers and writers would come to Memphis to record and produce, to try to capture and there were multiple studios there. The ones that we know about, of course, are Sun Records, Sam Phillips, uh, Stax Records. Uh, but there were a lot of other great studios, American Studios, uh, Arden Studios that were, that were there. But they all had the the studio bands were the Memphis-produced, Mississippi Delta-produced musicians. And they were influenced by that that lineage of, of, of blues. I mean... And it's interesting, as you well know, blues spawned so many different genres of music, from jazz to uh, rock and roll, uh, rockabilly, rockabilly, yeah, yeah, R and B. I mean, it, it. I mean, if you listen to music today, somewhere back there in it, if you listen closely, you're gonna. F- the greasy fingers of blues music from the Mississippi Delta is <laughs> pressed. <there. laughs> it just is. So. Uh, I was um, I was fortunate and enjoyed a, a wonderful time there, and it was it was so open then uh, the music industry, and it was in the '60s, and everything you know it was the the '60s revolution uh, that was manifested in you know cultural huge cultural shifts and change, and part of that of course was music, but it hadn't been uh, the corporate mentality on it had not set in yet. It was wide open. I mean, we, we would go over and hang out in, in the various studios and they encouraged it, particularly disc jockeys because, you know, they want airplay. Right. Exactly. But, but we, we would be there when they would be mixing records, recording, you know, tracks and stuff. It was just like, it was like going to a neighborhood pickup basketball game, you know, That's what you, did. you just go into the studio and, you know, and I, and I was a kid, 18, 19 years old. I mean, it was just Nirvana uh, and met all the people and, you know, hung out and got to know the people who've gone on and made huge names for themselves. So it was a great time. But it was also a time of um, we were in the, the throes of the of the civil rights movement. And this uh, I was there uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, April 4th, 1968. And that became the um, the basis for for my my first novel. Strangely enough, 
I was, I was writing at the time what will what is now the sequel to Memphis. I was writing that first. The book title is Dance with the Devil, and my acting manager and coach at the time knew my career, and we talked a lot about radio and what we're talking about now, the golden years, if you will. And she convinced me that you got to write Memphis first. That's the book you have to write first. Well, I've been writing Dance with the Devil, which you don't write fiction without it being semi-autobiographical, and both of these novels are. And Memphis uh, is loosely based on a character uh, of the time that is, is loosely based on some of my experiences. Of course, I took creative license in, in, in with fiction uh, uh, to, to be creative as much as I could. Uh, but a lot of it is historical and historical fact, and it's uh, 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 fiction based on fact. Uh, I, I, but Dance with the Devil was the first book. I went on from radio into television news and became a TV news anchor and reporter and producer and worked uh, the last 20 some odd years of my TV broadcast career in Washington, D.C. So I was, Dance with the Devil was based on a lot of my uh, up close and personal experiences with political corruption and and intrigue and narco-terrorism and politics and all of that. Uh, that was, that was uh, Dance with the Devil. So I, when I agreed with my acting manager that I, I got to write Memphis first, I took this same character, who was Matthew Harrison as a TV news anchor reporter, mm -hmm. uh, an erudite, worldly kind of guy, and took it back to the beginning that all began in the Mississippi Delta. They say that, that the Mississippi Delta begins in the lobby of the famous Peabody Hotel in downtown Memphis and ends some 100 miles, 120 miles south in uh, uh, Catfish Row in, in Natchez, Mississippi. So we, I was right at the top of, of the Mississippi Delta, and all of that was a, was a part of what was going on. And I knew in, in, when I started writing this, because not only because I was in Memphis when, when MLK Jr. was, was assassinated, uh, I, I knew I had to deal with that in some way, and I didn't quite know how I was going to do it. And I, but I wanted I wanted the book to be more than just you know the the the, the reminiscences of of a rock and roll DJ in Memphis, and and the assassination gave me that vehicle. So I did a tremendous amount of research and interviewing and talking to people about the assassination, and became convinced as has many have many others that James Earl Ray, the uh, alleged shooter and the guy who went to jail for it and died in prison, uh, was not the shooter. And Coretta Scott King, MLK Jr.'s uh, widow, uh, years later, after a lot of uh, relentless research by people and certain civil trials and depositions and sworn testimony came to the surface, she, she became convinced that James Earl Ray was not the shooter, and that, that it was a conspiracy at the highest levels of government. And I, and I firmly believe that. And that, that becomes, that, that's what the novel focuses down on. It, 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 it's basically the conspiracy to kill 
Martin Luther King Jr. with rockabilly, blues, soul music playing in the background. If, 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 it's, it's, if it were a movie, which there are people now who are talking to me about being a movie, it will be the soundtrack of the movie. And it was the soundtrack of our times. At, 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 you know, soul music was, was a big deal, if you'll recall. So that was all what was, was working for me at the time when, when I, when I uh, started writing Memphis. But I stayed in radio for a while before making the transition into television. And I, I started in Greenville. The next job was, I mean, you know, who, it, was, it was such a huge leap from uh, a non-existent radio station on the edges of oblivion to, uh, to Memphis. It was, uh, you know, it was a, a rated market. We're talking so, with Mike Hamm. And then I went to, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I no, wanted to tell our listeners, no, so I'm going to remind our listeners we're listening, uh, we're talking with Mike Hambrick, who's located in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, you're making that jump to, but before, before you do that, I, I, I want to mention something that, uh, a, a coincidence of sorts. I was working at a radio station in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. You talk about a local station and this served. I know Beaver Falls. I worked in Pittsburgh. The, okay. All right. Well, we were in the shadows of Pittsburgh yeah. and WBVP in Beaver Falls uh, served uh, about five or six counties uh, north of Pittsburgh. And my last night on the air was the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I left the following day and went to work in television in Youngstown, Ohio, at WFMJ-TV Channel 21 in Youngstown. And uh, there... That was my that was my first leap into really uh, professional broadcasting. I went from purely radio, and now I'm on television, and it was during that time. And and Youngstown did suffer the fate that so many cities in the country did after the assassination. We had civil unrest and rioting, and and there I am, this guy from Weirton, West Virginia. Uh, now, literally, right in the throes of, of that. <laughs> and I, I yeah. remember it clearly. I remember the National Guard. That's heady stuff for a young guy like that. It right? sure is. No, okay, yeah. so let's go back no, to I, you now. Well, um, I mean, we have similarities there, you know, um, in our careers. The uh, I, I worked at two stations in Memphis, FM 100, which was obviously FM, and then I went over to... Uh, an AM station, top 40 radio station, WMPS. I worked in Cleveland, in country music, Cleveland, Akron, at the big 50,000-watt station there, WSLR. And then strangely enough, you know, <laughs> I was, a, as many of us were, media gypsies. I decided that, hmm, I saw this ad in broadcasting for a program director job in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I applied for that job, and I was not just kind of as a lark. And, and sure enough, I, I, I got the job. I sent my resume to tape and all that stuff. So I got the job and, uh, went down and lived it. It was the only English speaking radio station on the Island. And it was at the time owned by Bob Hope. Oh, but I, I had <laughs> people who aren't, who, uh, who aren't disc jockeys, radio guys, and certainly people today, uh, with all of the technology and venues for for finding and listening to music, 
might not appreciate this as much, but the 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 nightmare I know you had and we all had uh, was uh, the the record playing out on the air before we got back to the microphone. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Okay. So in 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 Puerto Rico, there was they warned me of this. Not everybody has it, but there was there was this malady that that this would the illness that was come out of nowhere and they called it Lamunga. And I, I don't know, really, it was, I guess, some kind of virus. I don't know. But they said if it hits you, it will knock you to your knees and you're all but paralyzed. So I was the program director and the guy who was working Saturdays, the weekends called in sick. So I was the manager. I had to go in and work uh, Saturday afternoon. And I was coming back from the from the the wire room where, where the, the the news on the on the news wires would come, and I had it was called rip and read. I would rip the copy off and <laughs> right. go in and read the news. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so I was walking back around and had just opened the door back into the control room, and Lamunga hit me, and it did. <laughs> it knocked me to my knees, and I. I could barely raise my head, right? And the song that was playing, uh, I never will forget it, and every time I hear it, I go right back to that moment, was Elton John Rocket Man. <laughs> and I'm, I'm there, and I'm thinking, I, I, I got I to gotta get up and go. I, I, and I couldn't. And, and, and it played out, and I couldn't remember hearing... <laughs> Play on the label. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I really kind of, I guess, maybe went into shock. I mean, it was pretty serious. Uh, and I don't remember much, but I remember, you know, somebody heard, I think it was the engineer for the station, heard that, wait a minute, what's going on here? So he came in, and then they called the, uh, what was the EMTs at the time, and they didn't take me to the hospital. Went to a doctor, and they said, "Well, this is—it's obviously Omunga. Go home and take an aspirin and sleep it off." So that's basically what I did. But I—I I really did experience that nightmare, you know. And every time I hear Rocket Man, I, I almost feel like I'm paralyzed. Well, let me let me jump in and tell you. A, a, it's a big long story, but I, I'm not going to make it big long. I'm gonna I'm gonna get right to the punchline. I. All right. Because of what the way I did my radio programs, which was mostly, for the most part, morning shows, and um, I had I had a uh, worked for a great company that wanted me to do anything that I wanted to do to garner listeners. So I find myself in Kathmandu, Nepal, up on Mount Everest, and broadcasting from there back to uh, New York, and um, they warned me at the hotel where I was put out the yak and yeti hotel they warned me not to drink the water out of the out of the tap uh to drink only the bottled water that was in the mini refrigerator in the room right because the the domestic water will hit your intestines immediately and they said americans have no idea how bad this can be so they warned me to and so i was very careful I mean, even during cocktail hour, I didn't use the ice cubes. I was very, very careful about it. And so I drank all of the bottled, all of the water I drank came from the bottles in the mini fridge. So one day I came into the hotel earlier than normal and the housekeeper was in there. 
and she had my bottles from the refrigerator that had been emptied, and she was filling them from the tap. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And about a day later, (laughs) I was chained to my hotel room. (laughs) Right. And all the way home, all the way home from Kathmandu to JFK. (laughs) So, well. That was not a pleasant trip. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Well, before we run out of time, you, you, I want to hear about your, your time in um, uh, Washington. You, You were an anchor and a producer and all of those things. Yeah. Reporter. Yeah. Um, it, I, John, I was so fortunate. I was just a truly fortunate. I was just a kid, you know, ragtail kid out of rural East Texas. And I got to, because of, of broadcasting, uh, I, I got to travel the world. I covered wars and presidents and flew on Air Force One, interviewed oh, wow. all kinds of entertainment and world-renowned uh, known people. Um, it, it was just fantastic. Uh, but I also, after, um, traditional, I, I also did talk radio as well. I always kept my foot, <clears throat> even when, pardon me, when I went into television, I kept one foot in, in, in radio as well. And I either had syndicated, uh, produced news magazine type programs. One was called freedom line and the other America's business. But I also had did radio talk as well. I had a, a talk radio show when I anchored the news in Dallas on the big talk radio pro, uh, station there, KLIF, which strangely enough, back in my youth in growing up in within a hundred mile radius of of Dallas, KLIF was the top forty radio station where I heard, you know, all the music that that uh, that was the soundtrack of our lives at that time, and and. You know, I'm sure you've thought of this. It, it was <clears throat> top 40, and and you wonder how even to this day you can remember the lyrics of all those songs when they come up. Well, it's because, as you know, they play they played them over and over again. Exactly. You know? um, yeah. They didn't. And and the and the top 20 they played twice as much as they did the bottom 20. So you <laughs> you just heard those songs over and over and well, over. Again. They used like to tell us the, the program directors used to tell us uh, just at the time you're getting sick and tired of it, that's the time it's taking off. Yeah, yeah, and that was the that was the ticket. You know, that was the thing. The rack jobbers went crazy at that point, if you recall. Yes, we're so talking with Mike Hamburg in Memphis. I'm sorry. I was just no, no, go ahead. I, I was to... reintroducing you. Please do. Okay, <laughs> Mike Cambrick in Memphis, Tennessee. You did talk. Uh, I too have done talk. I, I I've done local and actually international talk shows. And I have often said that hosting hosting a radio talk show is the uh, worst form of human endeavor. Uh, when it's going well, it's going well, but when it's not going well, yeah. It's a disaster. Yeah. When the yellow lights on the phone are not blinking, you know you're in trouble. Yeah, right? and that's when you say something even you don't believe. And and yeah. <laughs> and then you're stuck with it forever. Anything to get them like, like yeah. I remember that the 
there were a couple of key phrases and issues that would light up the phones when I was uh, in Dallas. One was, um, of course, gun control. The other was Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) You mentioned Hillary and everybody goes. Uh, So there there was a fail-safe that you could always default to. Yeah, there were were a few things. Get a a psychic on. That's right, yeah, (laughs) right. Or or someone with a conspiracy theory. (laughs) Well, you have Uh, the... uh, let Let me say before I forget to inject this, if I might, that uh, if you're interested in finding out more about the novel Memphis, you can go to hambrickmedia.com and there's, uh, there's a little video that I did about me in the book and, and, and what was going on at the time. Or you can go directly to um, Book Baby. It's published by Book Baby. So go to bookbaby.com and in the little search box, type in Memphis and you'll get there. Yeah, I'm. I'm looking. Uh, I I have your that that particular website up, and uh, the the address in the in the box is hambrickmedia.cartra.com. Yeah, it, and hambrickmedia.com will take you there. Okay, but to be you can do .cartra and that will work too. So let's leave it. It's easier but, for the folks to remember hambrickmedia.com. Ambrickmedia.com. Is it also available through the usual Amazon and Barnes and Noble routes? Yeah, it is. But um, my, I would like to emphasize it, it's it's the Book Baby is a much better publishing uh, platform for particularly first-time writers, authors, and uh, you can actually talk to people and have conversations about what's going on with the book. Amazon is Amazon. It's the behemoth. But uh, I chose to go, and I could have published it on Amazon, but I, I chose to go with Book Baby because um, I wanted to, I didn't want to just turn it loose. I wanted to be able to touch and feel and still help in, in, inject into the marketing of it and dealing with people about the analytics of what's happening. And So I just m- made that decision. So I'm kind of a, a Book Baby promoter. So I would encourage people to go to bookbaby.com. Mike Hambrick is our guest today on Talking About Radio, and you had a unique uh, opportunity uh, to uh, to work with the king of all media, and uh, the guy is a phenomenon. I mean, he's just uh, he's like the Tiger Woods of radio, Howard Stern, right. and um, what people don't understand, and I and I, I realize that even a lot of people in our business look askance at him and. I do not, and I agree with my business partner, John Morgan. He and I say that if, particularly back when he was on terrestrial radio or even on Sirius, that if Howard Stern had never interviewed another lesbian, he would still be the one of the best radio entertainers ever. He just is terrific. And and you worked in in the studio with him. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I tell you, uh, Howard obviously is is. I, I I would assume he he's the single most successful broadcaster there is. Maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe Oprah is is a bit more, but he's right up there. The thing, Howard's a very smart, capable guy, and um, 
I, I agree with you and, and he about interviewing you know controversial social cultural figures but you know I, I mean I had Howard Stern in my headphones you know eight hours a day pretty much listening as I was just to give you a quick story a friend of mine who's a known radio executive you may know Tim Sabian he uh, had been with Howard for 30 years or so. He, he was responsible for syndicating Howard on terrestrial radio. I mean, you know, Howard Stern was, uh, he, he kind of, you know, did the, the stair step up to, to Sirius. It's an interesting story. He was successful in local radio pretty much wherever he went. But that was still a limited audience. He didn't, the majority of people in the marketplace didn't listen to him. It's just that most of the people in a certain age category, certain demographic did. Then when he went to, uh, to Sirius XM, I mean, it, 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 there was no limit basically to, to his audience. But I was, uh, it's, I think it's interesting to mention that, uh, there were three Hambrick brothers, my two older brothers, John and Judd, and we were all three of us TV news anchors. Oh, really? How interesting! And yeah, yeah. And John and Judd worked at the same station at KBC in Los Angeles. John did the six and eleven co-anchored, and Judd did the five o'clock, I think. But the the news promotion at KBC at the time was Channel Seven Eyewitness News. It's not like watching news; it's like watching family. You know, that was the, <laughs> so there was a there was a whole family kind of thing going on there. Uh, but my oldest brother, who was very influential in my TV career, uh, and we were he was he was t- ten years older than I. We were very close, and he was. Um, God rest his soul was was had been diagnosed with stage four uh, lung cancer, and I was spending the last days with him. He had retired and was living in uh, the Austin, Texas area. And I get a phone call from Tim, and you know, I hadn't talked to Tim for quite a while. And he said, "What are you doing?" I told him, and he said, "Well, it sounds like you need a break. Why don't you come to New York?" And I said for what? He said, well, come on up and, and, and talk to Howard. And I mean, I knew Howard Stern. I, I was honestly never a huge fan of his on terrestrial radio, but I, but I literally did say Howard who, because <laughs> <laughs> I just did, I just didn't make the connection. Yeah. Rush and who? Said, Stern, you idiot. <laughs> and I said, Oh, come on, Tim. And, and by this time, you know, I was, I, I had become a, a journalist. I, I, I was no longer an entertainer on the radio. And, um, I said, Tim, I mean, you know, how do I fit with Howard Stern? He said, you don't. And that's the great thing about it. Come on up and talk to Howard. So, okay. I flew up, talked to Howard. What they wanted to do, Howard had, had a news department and he had newscasts. Uh, and, but the news was totally Howard Stern centric. It was news about everything that was going on that day in Howard's world, Mm -hmm. but it was, but I said, okay, 
everybody wanted to be try to be a comedian in delivering the news. They played me some of the the tapes of people who were auditioning for that. They, he was wanting me to be the anchor. And I said, no, I won't do it that way. I'll, I'll do it like it's the CBS Evening News, but it's Howard News. And they thought that was a good idea. So I, 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 I decided, well, there's some things. I'd already you know, spent a lot of time going in and out of New York. The three brothers worked for NBC at one time. And uh, th that took me in and out of New York. But I wanted to spend some time in New York. So I did. I went to work for Howard, got an apartment at West 58th and 6th Avenue about seven or eight blocks from the studio. So I could walk to work, you know, just walk around in New York, you know? And so that was great. I, I wanted to, to take acting lessons. Uh, and I went to uh, Stella Adler's acting studio. And there was just, I just wanted to, do, to live and do the New York experience. And I did. And that gave me the opportunity to do it. But as I said, I listened to Howard all the time in, in my headphones while I was doing the work to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is a better interviewer in broadcasting today than Howard Stern. Now he does, he doesn't do stuff over the phone, right? He brings people in to his environs and it's very comfortable. It's very well lit. It's very soothing. And he just looks people in the eye and talks to them. And all of a sudden it's like Oprah. They're talking about everything they want to talk about personally. Yeah. And he got, but if you listen to his interviewing style and having done that work myself, I, I think I appreciated it at a, 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 another level. And he's just amazing that way. He's just, he's, and, and by this time he had started uh, moving his interviews were more uh, mainstream, a list interviewer uh, interviewees, uh, his guests. And so he wasn't doing stuff on the masturbation machine. He wasn't talking about, you know, deviant sex. He wasn't there. all that stuff. He was talking to people about stuff that was going on. And he had such a huge reach and such an influence that it was, I mean, if you, if you became, uh, if you were a guest or if you were a movie producer producing uh, or uh, with a movie or uh, talking about it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a slam dunk success because mm -hmm. it's not, if Howard gives you his imprimatur, then, then his audience is so loyal. Yeah. And so devoted. Now he, he may get, he may get the Jason Alexanders and the Harrison Fords of the world, but I get the Mike Hambricks. <laughs> Aren't you special? <laughs> yeah, I am. And I am as good at this as he is at his job. Yeah, I think so. Okay. You are. You are. It's, it's very smooth. It's very easy to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. It's good. Well, we're, we're we really, do more. we're getting uh, close to the end of our time here, uh, Mike. And I, I, I want to, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for taking time to, to be with us today. And I want to cover again the opportunity for those who are listening, if they, uh, and, and they probably will be interested in your book, Memphis. And, and, but you, that's not the only one you have. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I didn't retain the name of the, uh, the other book or how many have you written all, all told? Well, I've, I've only published one, which is Memphis, Memphis. and, um, uh, the sequel to Memphis, I, 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 had, before writing Memphis, I'd written a lot of, so I'm going back to that and then 
now that I've written Memphis, it will change a little bit. But the, the second book to be published is Dance with the Devil. In fact, Memphis begins with a prologue uh, with excerpts from Memphis, and it ends with an epilogue with excerpts of Memphis, and it's a it's a cliffhanger at the end that will be answered and dealt with in the second book, Dance with the Devil. Bookbaby.com. Bookbaby.com, or folks can go to hambrickmedia.com. H-A-M-B-R-I-C-K. Common spelling, hambrickmedia.com. Right. That's it, John. Well, very good. I this is this is so much fun for me. Uh, I retired from regular radio back in 1995. Went back to television. Uh, I had a card blanche. Uh, I was working for Ackerley Broadcasting out of Seattle, doing television features and traveling all over the United States. And yeah, and then kind of really, really retired. After 18 years in the seminar business with my business partner, and I really longed for some kind of a platform to get back to do this because I, I, I wanted, I'll do this until I can't do it anymore. And uh, right. I've had so much fun meeting so many great people that I'd never met personally before, guys like you. And, and it just astounds me how much we all have in common. And virtually every interview that I've done with radio folks, it starts out with, well, I was in high school. The one gentleman up in Maine that I, I interviewed the other day, uh, he would go and just stand outside the radio station and look through the window. And he got to be known as yeah. the kid looking through the window. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, sometimes it, it takes that, you know, there's the story. I know you're running out of time, but there's the story. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of how Chris Christopherson got Johnny Cash to listen to Sunday morning coming down. He had he had written, called, tried to get gate, past gatekeepers, all this stuff to get him to listen to Sunday morning coming down. And Christopherson was in the Vietnam War, and he was a helicopter pilot. So he rented a helicopter and flew it and landed in front of Johnny Cash's uh, on his lawn in front of his house got right. his attention <laughs> and and showed him Sunday morning coming down and then they had you know a relationship that was very close and productive for years and years and years. It's a, you, you got to persistence. Absolutely. Um, is and, and attitude. I remember I, I read an interview with uh, Quentin Tarantino and he was asked if there was any one single Thing that you could attribute your success to in Hollywood, what would it be? And he used the F word, attitude. <laughs> Friggin' attitude. Well, I, I told this story the other day. When I was still in Youngstown, Ohio, and my career was starting to take off pretty well, I was still very young, and I read in Broadcasting Magazine the Triangle Broadcasting which was owned by uh, Walter Annenberg, was looking for a director of the news operation in Binghamton, New York, the AM and FM. They also had a TV there, but this was going to be an AM, FM. This was back when I was still in news. And I knew that since it was in Broadcasting Magazine, everybody who could write their name 
was going to apply for that job. And uh, right. with a pretty uh, highly uh, regarded company. So I put together this very sophisticated resume. I had it professionally printed. I didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't get a lot of them done. You know, I just had one made. And so I sent it off to the general manager of WNBF in Binghamton, New York, who was going to make the decision on who was going to be hired for this position. Well, no sooner did I send it, about two weeks later, I got a call from WROC-TV in Rochester, New York. And they said, we are very interested in you coming to work for us. Could you send me a resume, send us a resume? And I thought, oh, heck, the only good resume I've got is the one I sent up to New York. And so I waited and I didn't get a call. And finally, I called the general manager at that station in Binghamton, New York. And I said, are you done with my resume? And he said, <laughs> yes. I said, would you mind sending that to WROC in Rochester? <laughs> and That's great. He hired me. How did that work out? He, he hired me. <laughs> he said, based solely on that chutzpah, <laughs> he hired me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, that's what it takes, you know. And uh, you can't be intimidated. No, you got to go after it. And Mike, again, thank you so much. Uh, you know, we could we could do this again. We could have another program and and go on at great length. These are just such such great memories and such great fun for me to listen to what our our guests are saying, telling us about themselves. And and I, I've learned so much. I'm looking forward to. Uh, uh, diving into Memphis and, and reading the book. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, having another chat sometime in the future with you. Well, it's been such a pleasant experience and visiting with you and your audience. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I hope if you, when you read the book, I'd like to hear your comments. I would appreciate that. I will do that. Mike Hambrick. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.